Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thanks very much for joining me today for an interview with Howard Chung about his book, After Unix, Science, Medicine, and the Transformation of Sex in Modern China. This came out with Columbia University Press in 2018. Now, the interview is extensive, so I'll try to keep this brief, and I'll just say this is a book that's going to be of interest to anyone who wants to read about or know about modern China, the history of science, technology, and medicine in modern China, um, history of sexuality and gender studies. It is a fascinating, fascinating story of sex, gender-related concepts in the context of modern China. So the thesis of the book involves arguing that Xing, Chinese Xing, grew into the conceptual equivalent of sex. And the book argues, and this is in the words of the book, that the modern formulation of Xing hinges on the rise of new structures of knowledge in the early 20th century. So as you'll hear in the hour to come, what the chapters do is take us through uh, five different contexts in which we see that transformation happening. And so it's going to be fascinating to you if you are interested in Foucauldian analysis, um, in the work of Foucault, but it doesn't just apply Foucauldian archaeology to a different context. It's really using um, the context of these sources that Howard's working with to make um, important methodological and theoretical contributions to the way we understand the history of sex, of concepts, um, and of the world. So with that, I will uh, leave you to it. Uh, Thank you so much for your support of the channel, for listening, and I really hope you enjoy this one. This was particularly um, fun and fascinating to do. I'm here today to talk with Howard Chung about his new book, After Unix. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time to talk with me, and thanks for writing a really, really awesome and brilliant book to talk about. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course. So, Howard, let's start at the beginning um, with the traditional question. What brought you to work on China and why modern China specifically as the focus for your research? Um, I like to think that I have a um, clear and simple answer to that question. But to be honest, I'm not sure um, I do. And I say that for um, at least several reasons. Um, First, sometimes I see myself um, more as a historian of science and historian of medicine. Um, And sometimes I see myself more as a scholar of um, gender and sexuality. And I think these are all kind of adequate ways of characterizing the kind of work I do. Um, But when uh, when I was first admitted to the History of Science program at Princeton, I knew that I wanted to write a dissertation on a topic that is situated at the intersection of science and sexuality. Um, but what really convinced me to focus on China were the great mentors that I met at Princeton. Um, for example, I was actually quite fortunate to have Sudna Ken ran the dissertation perspectives workshop during the summer that I took it. And just the way that Sue approaches and teaches that workshop and the way she kind of helps us conceptualize the different elements of a new project were just very, you know, gripping. Um, I still take some of her comments and suggestions to heart to this day when I think about new projects. I was also very fortunate to um, have spent a whole year with Janet Chen to do a one-on-one reading course in modern Chinese history. And that was just so eye-opening for me. Um, it pointed to both kind of gaps in my own knowledge, but also um, gaps in the field of Chinese history. And I'll be happy to talk about um, you know, how um, I came to the topic of sex change later, um, but that's actually related to that part. 
Um, I think above all, though, it was like a graduate seminar that I took with Ben Elman on the history of East Asian science that really completely changed my uh, perception and intellectual um, curiosity. Uh, ben is uh, very erudite in the history of science, intellectual and cultural history, and think really broadly about the role of China in world history. And that left a very um, a huge impression on me. And at that point, I knew that not only is the history of East Asian science that I want to work on for my doctoral work, but also that uh, Ben was such an important role model for me in the field of technology. And so the experience working with Ben and other mentors um, and their kind of flexible and open approach to intellectual and cultural history really cemented my desire to kind of become a professional historian of China. Now, having said that, I believe there's actually a more kind of personal reason for why I've come to study um, China in quotation marks. So I was born in Tainan, the southern part of Taiwan, and I grew up there until the age of 10 when I moved to Vancouver with my family. So you see from the get-go, I have been a kind of diasporic subject since a very young age. And I think this is a neat kind of biographical connection because the kind of language skills um, required to do the kind of archival work I do for my work um, was in some ways already planted early on in my life. Now, when I left Taiwan, it was actually at the tail end of um, Kuomintang hegemony in Taiwanese politics. And very quickly, um, not soon after we moved to uh, Vancouver, um, a, a new kind of discourse, native discourse of Taiwanese um, political independence uh, began to emerge. And I think that there's a lot that we can say about the different kind of consequences of the different social, cultural, and uh, political landscape that was changing around the turn of the millennium. But for someone like myself, kind of watching the developments from abroad and to look at how different claims about convergence and divergence between Taiwan and continental China were at work and how they change over time, I felt that I was in a kind of different, and unusual position to think about these issues from a historical, but also kind of overseas perspective. Um, and I, I, I know that that was a kind of long response to your question, but no, I just want to great. round this off by referencing the, you know, the recent uh, referendum in Taiwan on the topic of same-sex marriage. You know, when I, um, when I moved to Vancouver, the whole idea of gay marriage was totally out of the question. And um, I think the recent, uh, the outcome, the disappointing outcome of the referendum also speaks as much. But I mentioned this point because um, I, for me, in my ma- imagination, I do see a peculiar kind of place that Taiwan has come to occupy in East Asian LGBTQ politics. And because of my own queer identity, um, I've always been drawn to the promise and peril of Taiwan's um, gender and sexual politics. And that has been a very important kind of driving force for me to enter the field of Chinese studies. And now you see why I'm saying China in quotation marks. Absolutely. This is uh, Thank you, Howard, so much. This is amazing. And this is um, awesome to listen to because in microcosm, I think what you're giving us is a tiny example, right? I mean, not tiny, you are large, you contain multitudes, et cetera, but a a kind of an example of um, your sensitivity to the historical constitution of subjectivity and certain ways of being a subject in the world, even in the way you're narrating your own coming into this field in a way that um, I think is reflected in the book really, really beautifully, right? So this is very much the kind of work that the book does as well. So I'll say a little bit about Um, that book just super briefly, and then um, ask you to talk a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book. But just for listeners who are joining us um, who are not sure, right, who haven't had a chance to get their hands on a copy of the book or their eyes, the book we're talking about today sets out three major goals right at the beginning. So the first goal, and these are going to be largely in the words of the book, And that's how you know when I'm being particularly articulate, I'm using the words of the book because it's an extraordinarily beautifully written and very articulately written book. Okay, so the first is to show how sexual knowledge became a crucial element in the formulation of Chinese modernity. And we'll talk about Chinese modernity in the conversation to come as a concept. Second, to highlight the role of the body as a catalyst in the mutual transformations of Chinese nationalism and the social significance of sex. 
and third, to establish a genealogical relationship between the, dem- the demise of eunuchism, so that's um, eunuch plus ism, if you can't, um, for listeners who listen to that word and they're like, eunuchism, what is that? So the demise of eunuchism and the emergence of transsexuality in China. So it's um, it's an amazing book, um, and this started as a dissertation in some form of another. So Howard, can you say a little bit about that transformation? Did anything significant change for you as you were moving from one form of the project to the other? Absolutely. Um, I think at the dissertation stage, um, as a graduate student, when we are writing dissertations, um, they they are for a very specific audience. And in some ways, um, they are the basis, right, for um, an eventual book like this. Um, so by that, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of effort that's um, put into the process in which you are um, in some ways um, guarding yourselves, but also, um, in, uh, you know, there, it is also a place where you um, kind of belabor quite a lot about what other people say, for example, you're very careful about your um, footnotes and try to explain very minor point in three paragraph kind of footnotes. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of that going on at the dissertation stage. But I think when I transformed that into the book, um, the, the goal and um, the process that, that it entails um, to achieve that outcome is almost very different. Um, so, for example, now you are shifting the audience to a much a more general audience and much broader group. Um, it's beyond your dissertation committee. And so um, in trying to reach out to um, as many readers as possible and as wide of a readership as possible, um, your voice and your tone, the kind of the, the authority of your writing has to kind of take precedence. And um, I become less worried about um, whether um, what I'm saying is repeating other people's work, or whether I need to cite so many so many historians and scholars' work before I come to my own voice, um, I think at the book stage, um, that that transformation, one of the most important part of that transformation, is to um, privilege your own voice um, and make sure that that's leading the narrative of the book, rather than kind of hiding behind other people's work. But with that said, one of the things that I'll mention that I really appreciated about the book is how generous you are in citing and invoking the words and the ideas of other people who have helped you come to the conclusions that you have, right? And so even though I think it's absolutely the case that your voice dominates the narrative, right, in in all of the ways that it should in a book – Um, I think the book is also particularly generous in invoking um, the scholarship of others in places where it enriches the study, um, and that I think speaks to the generosity of the study. Um, And I don't think that's a a problem. So so yes, but also I want to give you credit for being particularly generous in in your invocation of other people's. So let's get into the book itself. Um, I'll say a little bit to situate us in the introduction and then kind of dive into chapter one. So I I just said a little bit about uh, some of the major goals. Another of the main goals of the book as laid out in the introduction is in the words of the book to locate the changing meanings of gender, sexuality, and the body within a growing global hegemony of Western biomedicine in the 19th and 20th centuries. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The book challenges the idea that China, quote, opened up to a global circulation of sexual ideas and practices only after the late 1970s and the economic reforms that came with it. And instead, it points us to a more salient turning point in the 1920s. Now, this is one of several points along the way where the book really usefully kind of makes us aware of a prevailing historiographical norm and then uh, kind of shows us another way of reading against the grain or of repositioning the history that you're talking about. And one of those other norms um, that I think the book is working against uh, happens right at the beginning of chapter one. Chapter one offers a very different history of eunuchs in China from that of existing historiography. So maybe let's start there, um, Howard, if you wouldn't mind. For you, what are some of the most important ways that the story that you tell about eunuchs in Chinese history here differs from what's come before? 
So I came, um, I came to this topic of um, Unix and uh, castration um, because, well, I've always been kind of fascinated by um, Unix and castration in China's history. Um, but so, so there's so so there's a lot of um, scholarly literature. There's quite a bit of scholarly literature on the history of Unix in China. Um, and a lot of them tend to deal with um, the involvement of Unix in China's political and state affairs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Unix did exert um, a lot of control in certain episodes of Chinese history, like Min Dynasty, for example, is a notable uh, example. Um, but so I was, I was, so I was fascinated by all that. Um, but I was also thinking that, you know, because castration is such a uh, embodied experience. Um, so for me, from the very beginning, I was curious and I wondered about um, how, how was castration experienced and what, what was the kind of embodied uh, experience of eunuchism. Um, so one of the main point of entry uh, for the chapter was then to rewrite the history of eunuchs, not necessarily through their intervention or involvement in state affairs, right? They have often been kind of pitched against the um, uh, Confucian statement as their kind of rival rivalries, um, but to re-narrate re their kind of um, history through their bodily experience. Um, so I would I would probably say that that's one of the first, um, mm -hmm. the most important objectives that I try to accomplish with this chapter, and that is to start with Unix body history. Great. So Howard, the chapter asks um, right at the beginning, right along these lines. All right. Given everything that you just said, what can we know about the history of castration itself? And you talk a little bit about the kind of the particular problem or the challenges of constituting an archive of castration in China. So can you talk a little bit about that? As you were working on this chapter, how did you constitute an archive of castration in China to be able to get at this other kind of story that, that you wanted to tell? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because we tend to think of castration as a um, medical operation. And to some extent, um, I think there's some measure of truth to that, it is um, a surgical intervention. Um, but what's interesting is that I um, I wasn't um, fully aware of the extent to which that there was such an explosion of um, visual, textual, and then eventually oral um, records about the castration operation itself. And this explosion really took place in the second half of the 19th century. Um, and it's also quite interesting because um, that particular archive um, involving uh, Western spectators, Western doctors, um, eventually uh, eunuchs themselves, but also uh, members of the Lat imperial family, um, that particular archive, I think, is doing a certain kind of historiographical work that is actually going against the very reason for castration's existence and survival. In Chinese history. And I'll be a little bit clearer about what I mean by that. Um, one of the most important parallels that I saw in the late 19th century was the rhetoric of exposure that came with this particular textual and visual archive. And you know, it's actually a rhetoric of exposure that's kind of akin to the kind of sources that emerged through missionary writings and other kinds of writings um, on the topic of foot binding. So you see that the, par the parallel in the rhetoric of exposure is going against um, the mechanism of concealment that would have um, cemented the kind of, and ensured the continual um, cultural survival of these practices. Um, the fact that these sources, this particular archive is now um, exposing the natural, the, the natural body of eunuchs and in fact, site of um, the castration site, these are all kind of new mechanisms of representation and depiction that was decisively absent before the late 19th century. So I came to this archive um, in some ways 
by pulling together everything that I could find <laughs> about the, the methods of castration uh, from the late 19th century, but also keeping in mind that this was a period in Chinese history that other forms of uh, bodily practices and embodiment were also subjected to kind of global condemnation. And so it was part of the ways in which China entered that global system of nation states being condemned as increasingly weak and increasingly kind of problematic that these ill forms of uh, embodiment became uh, exemplars of the problem with China itself. Thank you so much. Um, so in this chapter, there are at least four major insights developed, and I just want to kind of briefly name them for listeners. One, the penis became central in the biomedical redefinition of masculinity with, with respect to Chinese castration procedures. And I mention this because um, it's kind of charting this moment where this happens in a way that I think is really, really fascinating. Two, the masculine subjectivity of eunuchs in the social sphere can be separated from the gendering effects of the castration procedure itself. And this becomes important conceptually as the um, chapter kind of helps us question the relationship of men and manliness, right? Um, so that's also really interesting conceptually. Three, Western doctors were crucial in in the words of the book, relating the castration experience of Chinese eunuchs to a global community of observers. And four, the self-narration of eunuchs, even if we often access it through the writings of these Western observers, is crucial in shaping 20th century understandings of their own experiential past. So another, something that comes out of this um, that's really fascinating conceptually, Howard, is what you do with the idea of reproduction. So you say, or you make the point here in the chapter, I think really interestingly, and I'd like to just ask you to say a little bit more about this for listeners. While eunuchs could not reproduce biologically, they were capable of social and cultural reproduction. Can you say a little bit about that and about sort of what you take to be particularly important for us to understand about that? Yeah, so this is actually directly related to one of the uh, points that I made earlier about um, the fetishization of um, eunuchs' involvement in state affairs because a lot of times um, that negative depiction of eunuchs um, in their influence in uh, China's political affairs um, has often been reduced or uh, blamed on their lack of masculinity. That 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 this, this very specific and this is a very kind of biological definition of masculinity, um, kind of flattens the way we understand um, Unix body histories. Um, I think I was trying to um, kind of depart from that, and in this process, I was really uh, taken by the work of Nancy Rose Hunt, um, who wrote about um, the history of biological and social reproduction in the context of colonial Congo. Um, I was just very taken because, um, and the way she writes is beautiful for one, um, but also the whole idea of reproduction that can be applied to not just women, but also men. And you need to kind of um, um, enter the world of their uh, rituals, um, native rituals in order to grasp why reproduction, in fact, social reproduction, is uh, meaningful, um, as meaningful as biological reproduction, made a huge impact on me. And so um, I was drawing on that insight, making a comparative kind of insight claim about how we can also understand um, castration you know, as a cultural practice, but also as a mechanism of social and cultural reproduction. Um, in some ways, uh, Ben Elman had made a similar point about uh, the civil service examination system, which it's a mechanism of socially reproducing uh, the Torati elite. So I'm also working off of that, um, working from that notion as well. I think the idea of um, men being separate from the idea of masculinity is also very crucial here um, because uh, we tend to think, or um, conventional wisdom has it that uh, the, the normative definition of masculinity can be understood in relation to biological maleness or some kind of um, um, problematic, complicated relationship to biological maleness. But here you see that uh, even eunuchs, even with their elimination of their reproductive potential and capacity, 
Um, just think about the gender dynamics within um, the Forbidden City, within the court, their relation to different men um, in Forbidden City, and their relation to uh, other women too in Forbidden City. It, it, there's a lot of um, reasons for us to think that Unix actually had not uh, lost a social sense of masculine identity. Also, I was kind of building on that insight as well to really try to break the um, easy and simple connection between men and, and masculinity. And so that's how I came to this idea that castration, um, we tend to think of that as the removal of um, the capacity to reproduce biologically. But from a social and cultural perspective, and given that the practice of castration and eunuchs um, have played such an important role in Chinese history, that there must be a way for us to reread its significance through the lens, through a more social and cultural lens. It works really well in the chapter, I think. Um, and thank you so much for that. So there's also another chapter that comes after this. I'm just going to kind of briefly name what's happening, some of what's happening in there before moving on, um, just because it's a fascinating chapter and I don't want to completely leave it out. But then, but you know, we don't have five hours, which I wish we did. But so for <laughs> listeners, um, there is a second chapter that comes after this, Vital Visions. This is a chapter that looks carefully at the layers of new visual evidence that, in the words of the book, made it possible for sex to become an object of observation. Now, the analysis of the text grounds the chapter's argument that the visual realm occupied a central role in the reconceptualization of sex and ultimately, again in the words of the book, grounded the formation of a Chinese body politic on the verge of national modernity. And we'll come back to that point in a bit. There are three techniques of visualization um, that the chapter looks at that provided foundations for a new form of visual proficiency that, in the words of the book, reorganized gender in naturalist terms and established the conditions under which sex became an object of empirical knowledge. So the book in turn takes us through an anatomical aesthetic of medical representation and a particular Western style anatomical text introduced in China um, in 1851 the morphological sensibility of the natural history tradition. So I mention that because natural history fans who are listening um, will actually find some super cool history of modern natural history stuff in this chapter. And you might not have um, realized that looking at the cover or um, listening to this otherwise. And also the subcellular gaze of experimental genetics. So there's a lot happening in that chapter. And I just want to flag it for listeners who are particularly interested in the history of images and images and visual analysis, there's a lot happening um, in chapter two. But I want to take us to chapter three, Deciphering Desire. This looks closely at the rise of sexology in the 1920s as a pivotal turning point in the history of sexuality in China. Now, as you show here, the 1920s saw in the words of the book, and then I'll um, step back in a moment, saw the translation and appropriation of Western sexological texts, concepts, methodologies, and styles of reasoning that brought with it a new regi regime of truth. Okay, so new regime of truth. Listeners may be pricking up their ears here if they have um, an interest in Foucault, and this is what I want to ask you about, Howard, right? So one of the things that's really striking about this chapter um, is it's really kind of a model of the broader phenomenon in the course of the book where you're bringing Foucauldian archaeology and Foucauldian analysis to bear on the um, archive that you're working with. So let's talk about that. Howard, can you talk a little bit about, for you, the importance of Foucault as a kind of inspiration methodologically for the analysis that you're undertaking here? How did you come to that? And in what ways is that foundational to the work that you're doing in the book? Mm, I think that's a great question uh, in all sorts of different ways, but uh, specifically the way that the book um, deals with queer history um, just because in the um, historiography of um, gender and sexuality, Foucault has come to play a very important role in showing that there was an important kind of paradigm shift in the late 19th century. Um, and this was a moment in which, um, in which there was a rise of kind of a regime of um, sexual science that determined the conceptual space for 
new kinds of sexual um, categorization and identity. So what we call homosexuality and heterosexuality today kind of emerged from that particular regime of truthhood. Now, in Foucault's own vocabulary, um, it was a shift in the technology of the sexual self, right? And the European context, he shows that the shift kind of translocated um, the truthhood from the theological sphere of pastoral confession to the secular discourses of modern science and medicine, right? And, and this is in what he calls scansia sexualis that emerges um, the space for articulating modern categorizations of sexual identity. So that was actually quite, um, that, that was a quite important role model for me when I was looking at the work of sexologists um, in the early 20th century China, because um, I would see this uh, kind of project as contributing to this larger um, effort to globalize the history of sexual science. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is that uh, Foucault served as an important role model, but um, I also see ways in which I kind of enrich the Foucaultian historiography by not just looking at China as a kind of um, the case study of being an ethnic supplement, but also really expanding our historiographical canvas. Um, for me, I think that the global history of sexual science, right, of which I think the Chinese history of sexology is an important part, um, has been um, executed through a number of different ways. For example, um, this global history has been narrated through the life and work of specific sexologists. So in earlier 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, the work of Magnus Hirschfeld was very important. And by the time that we get to the mid 20th century, American sexologist Alfred Kinsey started to assume kind of center stage of the international sexological network. Um, and here, of course, my, my chapter is trying to add a different roster of sexologists to this list, right? Zhang Jingshen and Pan Guangdan, both of whom were very important figures in this history. So Zhang Jingshen was known as the doctor of sex um, in the 1920s, and Pan Guangdan was one of the most important eugenicists in China. But that's that's a biographical approach, which is you know uh, convincing and allows us to ground our narrative in a very specific kind of individuals, the history of individuals. But the second approach, I think, has been um, the approach of circular circulation and, and circuits. And here, I think that from the Japanese and Chinese perspective, we are seeing a particular kind of East Asian circuit of race and eugenics that is a little bit different from the typical circuit of race and eugenics that we tend to associate with Germany, England, and the United States. There is a third circuit that is the Latin circuit of eugenics um, that has been articulated between Southern Europe and Latin America. Um, and these, you know, like I said, I think these are all extension of the Foucauldian um, uh, genealogy. But finally, I think that what if one of the most uh, important ways that I try to um, break from a simple model of kind of uh, re receptionist history kind of model, right? This is not a chapter that's, that claims um, some kind of role for Foucauldian approaches simply in China. But I do think that the way that these sexologists were translating um, and introducing Western ideas through those processes of translation, um, they are also demonstrating a certain kind of innovation. Um, so for example, uh, Zhang Jingshen um, came up with this very interesting and controversial theory about um, how women produces uh, three kinds of water in sexual intercourse. I mean, for me, that was such an important moment in which you see there's not only a bridge between traditional Chinese culture, he kept on saying the different importance of electric qi being generated during sexual intercourse, but also recasting that in modern anatomical terms, right? And Pan Guangdan, for example, when he was translating Havelock Ellis's work, he actually included his own essay that listed examples of homosexuality um, in traditional Chinese culture. Um, and, and for me, that, again, that cannot be reduced to a simple moment of um, regurgitation or translation because he's actually producing, through the site of innovation, actually producing a Chinese form of sexology that adds to and complicates the global story that we tell. I know that's kind of a long no, answer to your question, awesome. but, but I think it is a way to um, borrow from Foucault, but also recognize 
the limitation of this particular method and approach, but also expand, especially in this particular moment when global and transnational history and the global history of science is emerging um, as a very kind of important intellectual trajectory in which a lot of us are working toward. Now, this is super, super helpful. And I actually want to ask you to talk a little bit more about this, if you can believe it. Um, so mm. you talk about um, some of this in the frame of, or using the frame of epistemic modernity in the chapter. Right? And you kind of um, talk about this as a frame um, with which to understand some of what's going on. So can you talk a little bit more about the way that the particular frame of epistemic modernity helps us um, to, in, or it helps to inform, helps us to understand how homosexuality discursively emerged in 20th century China. Um, and to sort of, um, just to contextualize that a little bit, this is part of an approach um, that you talk about early in the book that we haven't talked a, about very much called historical epistemology. So for um, science studies people or historians of science tech med who are interested in the larger frame of historical epistemology, um, that's part of what's informing what's going on here. So just to recap, how does the frame of epistemic modernity help inform how homosexuality discursively emerged in 20th century China, Howard? Um, so I'll, I'm going to try my best. Yeah, it's a huge it's, question. Yeah, I wrote a whole, whole chapter on this, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to try to condense this into um, uh, a, a very straightforward way of answering. I think there's um, there's probably there are probably two um, two ways of um, answering the question. One is the more general uh, methodological ambition of the book itself, um, as you said. This book is contributing to a growing literature on historical epistemology, which for me is an approach that tries to move beyond social constructionism in science studies, right? Because we're now examining the ways in which concepts evolve with their own kind of historical logic. And so this is a way to acknowledge the limits of a purely discourse-based analysis. And um, the book itself, and, you know, homosexuality and the carnality of sex is part of it, but the book itself um, charged a larger kind of epistemological transformation of the concept of sex. Um, so that, that move from a pure etymology to epistemology approach uh, is intended to look at the conditions that you know, had to be established in order for xing, the Chinese word for sex, uh, come to be a topic of empirical understanding. Um, so the project of homosexuality is, is kind of part of that. Um, and in some ways, I came to this idea of epistemic uh, modernity precisely with that in mind. I was very influenced by the work of um, Ian Hacking, but also by the work of Arnold Davidson and others who work in the field of historical epistemology. I think one of the most important turning points uh, for me when I um, crystallized, um, in fact, I think the idea of epistemic, epistemic modernity continues to be um, refined over the course of my kind of work. Um, but one of the most important turning points was when I came across the notion of colonial modernity developed by uh, Tani Barlow. And so I was thinking about um, how is it that we can think about the history of same-sex relations in China uh, without having to always go back to a kind of pseudo-Orientalist idea that the homosexual tradition in China is always different from other places in the world. So the concept of epistemic modernity allows me to do that because it allows me to zoom in on a very specific kind of apparatus, right, in the Foucauldian sense um, that characterizes a historical moment during which this new sexual science uh, came to be epistemologically rooted in Chinese culture. Um, and this, because we're dealing with episteme, so we're dealing with knowledge, we're dealing with truthhood. Um, this was particularly revealing because when you look at someone uh, like Zhang Jingshen, um, he was trying to establish a public of a truth in which you know the authority of truth could be contested, um, but implicit in his sexological enterprise is the argument that um, right, the traditional vehicles for narrating desire, 
right? Fiction, poetry, and there's a lot of that, even in the realm with, with respect to the topic of homoeroticism. But once you get to the May 4th period, the new culture period, what his sexological project aims to do is to argue that, well, those kind of uh, um, literary or fictional approach no longer holds in the modern moment when the right way to narrate one's sexual desire and under understandings of sexual identity now requires certain claims of truthhood. Um, and so the life kind of life histories that he collected, um, the stories about people's sex lives that he collected um, was an important feature of um, this book that he published called Sex Histories in 1926 that really uh, earned him this title of Dr. Sex, that he was saying that this kind of case studies method, right, this is actually a method that other um, European sexologists were also using um, to describe and understand um, sexuality in scientific terms. So he's saying that this kind of case studies method now established, kind of establishes a public truthhood that was kind of decisively, decisively missing in the earlier period. Um, and this is what I think the work of epistemic modernity is really doing for us to unpack that. On the one hand, there's a regime of sexual knowledge, but on the other hand, um, it is also a regime of modernity. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, as ever, super, super helpful and articulate. So this brings us to chapter four. And at this point, I'll just kind of remind us um, that the, about one of the major kinds of work that the book does. So the book looks at the way the concept of sex was crystallized in China through the intersection of its three, as you call it in the book, epistemological coordinates as the object of observation, so we talked about that in chapter two a little, as the subject of desire, and as a malleable essence of the human body. So this is, um, and the book lays this out really beautifully. Chapter four is going to focus on this third coordinate, the mutability, by looking at the discourse of sex change in the press from the 1920s to the 1940s. So after a really interesting um, discussion of hormones, uh, the theory of universal bisexuality, the idea that eunuchs were regendered as feminized males, it looks at hermaphroditism, the second half of the chapter focuses on a highly sensationalized case, the female-to-male transformation in mid-1930s Shanghai of Yao Jinping. So this is an amazing case um, for so many reasons, um, and it's amazing to read about in this chapter. Um, Howard, can you open up the case a little bit for us? For you, what do we need to understand about Yao Jinping to understand um, the importance of Yao Jinping for the work that the chapter is doing? So the chapter um, aims to trace um, this mutable dimension of sex. Um, and I think Yao Jinping's case was especially important um, for several reasons. Um, but in order to get there, I think it's kind of useful to think about what came before. Um, so for example, this, actually, this was actually a context in which the earlier um, stuff that I talked about in terms of anatomy and um, morphology of sex, um, the generation of May 4th feminists uh, were very much um, interested in drawing on the language of anatomy to talk about two different but equal sexes, right? But by the time we get to the late 1920s and 1930s, um, the rhetoric started to shift. And now Chinese sexologists were no longer looking toward anatomy exclusively to talk about sex and gender. In fact, um, this, the 1920s and 1930s, um, just in the larger historiography of science in general, has also been kind of identified or isolated as kind of a golden age of endocrinology. And the importance of that is that um, now endocrinology provides a more chemical and quantifiable definition of sex. So these ideas were you know, translated in the Chinese press in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and with that, it came with a new kind of conceptualization of sex, right? This is what I meant by the theory of universal bisexuality, which refers to the fact that everyone um, can be both male and female. 
Uh, because what the biochemist found was that everyone had both male and female sex hormones in their bodies. And so it would just be a matter of measurement or be a matter of quantity of hormones in one's body that determines whether one tips more masculine-wise or more feminine-wise. So that was an important theory of bisexuality that started to unsettle a, a, a binary understanding of sex. But also at the same time, um, uh, European scientists were experimenting with animal sex change experiments, like, uh, sex change experiments, and um, they found that by transplanting gonads, for example, they can turn a male animal to female and vice versa. So the idea of sex change was high on people's radar, but at this point in time, it was mostly on in terms of animals, right? In the 1930s, it's interesting that Chinese writers started to also, these are complicated, right, boring ideas about sex and sex mutability. Um, so how did Chinese writers um, come to this and grasp these ideas? So it turns out that they started to draw on indigenous culture, such as examples of eunuchs that we talked briefly about, but also um, hermaphrodites, um, because castration serves as a very telling example right, of human-induced sex alteration. Um, and the body of uh, hermaphrodites, um, the physical makeup uh, seems to suggest that everyone, or at least in the case of intersexualities, are innately bisexual, um, biologically bisexual. So the bodies of eunuchs and hermaphrodites served a kind of concept as a conceptual interface for Chinese writers to grasp and comprehend these foreign and new ideas about sex change. The importance of Yao Jinping comes in at this stage because prior to the case of Yao, and this happened in 1935, prior to the case of Yao Jinping, um, Chinese scientists, yes, they entertained the idea of sex change. Um, yes, they um, drew on uh, indigenous culture to understand the idea of sex change, the idea of endocrinology, and the theory of bisexuality. But up to this point, the transformation of sex was kind of um, relegated to a marginal and anomalous sphere, right? They're looking at reproductive anomalies, castration, hermaphroditism, and animals. They had not thought about the possibility of non-intersexed humans, um, quote-unquote normal adults, as being capable um, of being agents that request sex change. And the case of Yang Jinping um, became a tipping point, right? That, 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 that introduced the possibility that, you know, one does not have to be um, intersex or does not have to be an anomalous um, uh, cases in order to be an example of sex transformation. So that was kind of my argument in the chapter that Yao Jinping's case started to disseminate and popularize the idea of, of sex change, even for uh, non-intersexed normal humans. Now, one of the really fascinating things about the way the chapter kind of relates um, and gets into this case is the particular way that the story unfolds in Yao's case, right? So it, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a transformation that happens like literally overnight, right? It's relatively sudden that um, this uh, female to male transformation that hinged on um, at one point uh, she brings a grandma in and grandma like feels her genital area or his genital area at that point and like seems to feel a penis and like, oh, but it turns out later on, like it wasn't actually a penis. And so the way this plays out in terms of a public, um, the public press is actually quite sympathetic, right? I mean, you have this story of this transformation where um, Yao would not disrobe, right? Finally, um, like Yao is knocked out or kind of like put under anesthesia, Doctors um, finally disrobe Yao, see that it was actually not what they had been um, relating. And instead, this becomes this really kind of heart-rending story about wanting to join the army and be closer to Yao's father. It's just a really, really sensitively wrought study or uh, story. And it's uh, really just kind of fascinating the way this plays out in the chapter. Is that generally right? 
Like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I, I I wish I had more time to talk about it. But one of the surprising um, elements that I discovered was that um, in the way that um, different commentators talked about Yao's case um, in the press, uh, but also in the medical profession, they, you know, I, I was thinking that something like this must be seen so unusual and out of the ordinary, right? That it may have. Um, uh, surprised or shocked people, and certainly did, but they didn't really take it in a way that was very negative. Mm-hmm. Like they, 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 they characterized the Yao story um, in all sorts of different ways. You know, at one point, I even entertained the possibility of including the concept of scientific modernity in the title of my book because this kind of directly speaks to that. That the desire for being modern is, you know. Uh, interrelated, intertwined with ideas being scientific. And they were saying how Yao's case could provide biologists and doctors a very important uh, case to study um, human biology, but also the biology of sex transformation. Um, they were really positive about that until, of course, they found out this was not, um, this was actually all just a, a fake um, incident. Um, but even afterward, some felt that her desire to change her sex is totally reasonable because um, she wanted to reconnect with her father, mm-hmm. right? So it brings it, it or join her father in, in, the, in the army. And this kind of brings back um, uh, narratives of Hua uh, Mulan at the same time in, in, in kind of rationalize Yao's desire and in some ways um, justify justifies her desire too as well. So, so I was just really um, kind of struck by the fact that Yao's t- depiction in the popular press was um, not as negative as I initially thought it would be. And it's and that 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 was that I mean for me that was precisely what scientific modernity was doing. At that point in time. Yeah, and it's so interesting too because um, readers or listeners who are familiar with the um, Guanyin story, right, the kind of um, the association with um, or the association between filial piety and body transformation that comes with like a long history of stories of you know feeding your body parts to your um, ailing parents, right? I mean, there's a, we could talk about that for an hour, but this idea of um, kind of bodily transformation being associated with fil- filial piety is also something that is very much in the air. Um, when I was thinking about this story and reading this chapter, um, it's just, it's anyway, there's a lot more that we could talk about <laughs> but we need to get to chapter five, which offers another really um, amazing and fascinating uh, example to think with in this chapter. Okay, so chapter five looks very closely at the case of Xie Jianshun in 1950s Taiwan. Um, so Xie was considered by many to be the first Chinese transsexual. So I'm just going to hit the ball over to you, Howard. Can you say a bit to introduce the general outlines of the case for listeners who may not have heard about it and to say a little bit about what you take to be most important and interesting about this case for the work that you're doing here in this chapter? Yeah, you know, by just kind of by um, prefacing what I'm about to say, I think it's uh, worth mentioning that um, uh, I think for any kind of book project, um, one reaches a certain point in which you realize that either this is doable or not. And this was kind of the tipping point for me because, uh, well, first of all, I was just very surprised that I uh, came across this case of transsexuality in 1950s Taiwan. I was just thinking about, you know, what I learned about modern Chinese history, about modern Taiwanese history. This was such a, you know, a GMD hegemonic um, and heavily censored time in, in, in Chinese history. So I was not at all prepared to come across a widely reported case of um, human sex reassignment um, in 1953. So, but it was because of that and because I discovered a whole range, there's so much in the media that talked about Xie and the um, different stories that, uh, a lot, numerous different stories that emerged in the aftermath of the Xie story, um, that finally convinced me and persuaded me that this um, 
this book project is not only feasible and that this is a very reasonable and rational place to conclude my story. Um, if I started with the demise of castration and eunuchism, that's kind of um, we're beginning the story with the ending of a historical epoch. And now I think with the emergence of transsexuality in 1950s Taiwan, I kind of conclude the narrative of the book with the beginning of a new era. So I just want to preface this by saying that that, that was um, very important, uh, a very important part that convinced me that this book was doable. Um, Xie was, um, was an interesting case because as, as you know, um, Kuomintang lost the civil war and um, they came to Taiwan in the late 1940s with Chiang Kai-shek and Xie was part of that migration. Um, and she was discovered um, to be an intersexed uh, initially due to um, different um, physical conditions. Um, but what's interesting is that um, the, the doctors proposed a series of surgeries to be performed on Xie, uh, despite the fact that she actually resisted uh, quite a lot initially. Um, against these sex change surgeries. Um, but she was kind of coerced into it, I would say, um, over the course of the mid-1950s. Um, but, he, you know, she did come out as um, a, a seemingly successful case of sex reassignment. Um, and she did change her name, her gender, and her kind of entire persona. Um, one of the most important um, aspects of the story, I think, is that she was consistently called the Chinese Christine. And initially I was just thinking that, you know, oh, so why was she being called the Chinese Christine? Her name is Xie Jianshun, right? Her name is not Christine. And it turns out that um, the press was actually referring to a very famous case of transsexuality in the United States, um, the case of Christine Jorgensen, who went to Denmark for her surgery and kind of came back to the United States in the 1950s and kind of surrendered to her celebrity. She really became a kind of worldwide phenomenon. She made transsexuality a global phenomenon in the 1950s. So it became clear to me that when they were calling Xie Jianshun um, the Christine of Free China, I mean, that's what they're calling Taiwan in 1950, Free China, uh, that's that kind of in the remit right, of, of US um, Cold War politics. Um, that they were actually referring, alluding to the case of Christine Jorgensen. Um, so that, again, it's, for me, um, if I can kind of relate this back to the earlier point about uh, innovation in the global history of sexual science, I also see this as another incidence or site of innovation um, because it shows that, first of all, the Christine Jorgensen narrative, um, a white-centered narrative of transsexuality, does not have to dominate the global history of transsexuality. In fact, this global history is most meaningful when we see the historical process as kind of mutually uh, produced rather than a simple notion of um, origin and copy. Um, so for me, that was a very important turning point and the kind of intellectual um, path that I've taken up to that point. But also I think this adds and really adds sophistication to existing narratives of the history of sex change and transsexuality, which is still kind of limited. So I want to ask you like 7,000 other questions, um, including like the, I mean, this is another really <laughs> sensitively wrought story. And at the beginning, she has like, no, 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 I want to, I want to stay a as a dude, you know, I want to be a man. I want to be a man. They send like sexy nurses into Shia's um, hospital room at one point to like test them right it's just such an interesting story but what i want but we don't have five more hours so what instead i'm gonna do howard is just ask you to kind of wrap up a little bit as we move toward our conclusion by expanding a little bit on what you've just been talking about in terms of what you call a sinophone approach here right so you mentioned the approach taken in this chapter um and i think really um in the book Perhaps uh, th this really informs the work that the book does as a whole. Um, you talk about the way a Sinophone approach here pushes postcolonial studies beyond its overwhelming preoccupation with the West 
how it redraws our map by recentering the non-West Asia and China, and also how it enables us to see and think beyond the conventions of China studies. So I know we don't have that much time, but um, if you wanted to say a little bit about for you what's um, really important and generative about Sinophone studies and the Sinophone approach here, um, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I would love to. And again, this is something that I've written so much mm-hmm. about that I'm going to try to be very short <laughs> and very succinct. Um, but it is this point into the project where I was confused. I was unsure what to do with this material. Because as I said, I was um, shocked that there is such a wide-scale discussion of uh, sex change in 1950s Taiwan. But how do I bring that into a book, the narrative of book, that has primarily been centered on mainland China, right, in the Republican period. I mean, so so this was where I became quite um, uncertain about what to do with this chapter. Initially in the dissertation, this was an epilogue, right? It was like 60-page epilogue. <laughs> but then, when I transformed this, yeah, it was a 60-page epilogue. And But when I transformed this into a book, I decided that um, I, um, I'm going to be bold, and I'm just going to call this chapter five instead of an epilogue. Um, initially, I called it an epilogue because it was really outside of the geographical remit of the earlier four chapters. Right now, we're moving to Taiwan. Um, but also, I think in Chinese history, for example, we tend to look at the Maoist period in mainland China uh, as the sequel story to the Republican period. And in Taiwan, if you think about the narrative of Taiwanese history, it's quite vertical as well, right? You have the Japanese colonial period and you have the uh, Kuomintang period and over you have the post-martial law period. Um, that's a very vertical approach. But by bringing the attention um, to post-war Taiwan after Republican China, in some ways, um, this is already uh, a queer project of its own, right? It really challenges the convention of both Chinese history and Taiwanese history. And so... The Sinophone approach was particularly useful because it allows me to make those connections through a different, you know, several different ways. Like language was very important. The way that we think about our unit of analysis around language instead of nation state was a very important uh, point of departure for me to see this as Sinophone Taiwan instead of just like Chinese Taiwan, if that makes sense. Um, and also because Taiwan's relationship to China is actually quite similar to some of the other regions on the periphery of China or outside of China and their relation to continental China. This, um, I would say, is in in fact a post-colonial relationship, right? With the rise of China in the 21st century, it colors the way we think about Chinese history. And, um, you know, a very important source of inspiration was the work of Deepesh Chakrabarty when when he talks about um, how uh, we must provincialize Europe in post-colonial theory. And in this sense, I think what I'm trying to do is also to provincialize China and, of course, to provincialize Japan. And so just think about how the minor kind of regionality of the Taiwanese context in the 1950s allows us to um, go beyond the confines of nation states, but also travel kind of in between. Um, I think it speaks to the heart um, of the agendas um, and objectives of queer studies, that is to kind of allow us to defamiliarize ourselves with things that we tend to be taken for granted. And so I think this kind of rounds off the discussion remarkably well, because it's a case of transsexuality, but um, it makes Taiwan um, a kind of queer case too in the larger field of Asian studies. So, Howard, I can't thank you enough um, for everything that you've opened up for us in the past hour. Um, and there's a million Kashmillion things that I would want to talk to you more about. But now that we're at the end, is there anything um, in particular that didn't come up in the conversation um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close? Um no, not really. Okay. And I'll just direct listeners to the book itself, right? There's so much more um, in the book than uh, what we had time to talk about today. But now that the book is out, and congratulations on a an awesome book, Howard. I mean, it's, it's brilliant and really brilliantly written, and I'm sure people are going to be reading this for decades and decades and decades to come. What is on your mind now? What are you working on and what's next for you? 
I'm currently working on two projects. Um, the first one is to think a bit more um, broadly and theoretically about the rhetoric of history by drawing on uh, transgender cases. Um, most of the archival materials are Chinese language materials, but I'm trying to move from that particular core to theorize the relationship between history, uh, between global history and queer theory. So this book um, is called um, Above the Radar, Transtopia and the Rhetoric of History. I'm also working on a new project um, on the history of Chinese psychoanalysis and the role of Chinese culture in trans-Pacific, uh, transcultural psychiatry. Um, and it, it's interesting that we're ending um, our discussion here because you know before I entertained the topic of sex change for my dissertation, I actually wanted to write, um, I, I wanted to work on the history of psychoanalysis in China. But when I was a graduate student, I actually didn't think that that was feasible. And um, you know, I think now having written after Unix, um, I'm, I've come to a stage where I think that um, I've acquired different kind of intellectual tools and different exposure to archival work that, um, that finally I feel confident enough that this project can be undertaken. So that would be my third project. Well, thank you so much for making the time and taking the time away from that work to talk with me today, Howard. It's really been a pleasure. And again, congrats on an amazing book. Thank you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and come back and check us out again next time.